join me, uh, Acts chapter number 13, Acts chapter number 13, we're making our way uh, through this book, we've uh, been at it for a little over a year, um, we didn't really hit it in the month of December, um, so here we're starting February, all right, Acts chapter number 13, uh, earlier, just a few minutes ago, you saw on the screen Psalm 145, Psalm 145, anybody want to take a guess who wrote Psalm 145? David, good guess, good guess. Put that in the back of your mind. Log that in the back of your mind, okay? All right. In a moment, uh, we're going to try to advance, so let's lay a little groundwork in Acts chapter 13. Everybody ready? Um, So here's some groundwork. We are only introducing a message uh, that was on the missionary journey, the first missionary journey. The Holy Spirit has come and made clear to this church in Antioch of Syria. Catch this. There are 16 Antiochs in the ancient world. We're going to read about a, separate, a second Antioch in a moment. That's going to be over in the area of what we call Turkey, Galatia, back at that time. So this church in Syria, the, the large city of Antioch, it sent out these two missionaries, uh, Barnabas and Saul. And Saul, we now know, is called Paul in our story as of last week. And so we're progressing along. They've been sent out. Uh, they've gone to the island of Cyprus. In fact... Uh, Can I throw you a a curveball, Tara? I've already thrown him a curveball earlier, and I said, put that map. I told him, put the map after the reading. Are you able to just go ahead and click on last week's map, if we could see that? So as you look at that, this is, you see what's called the land of Palestine, Israel. Go north up there over on your right side, and you'll see Syria. There's Damascus. And so when the missionary team began, um, they go to Barnabas' homeland, which was that island of Cyprus. He was a Jew, but he was originally from Cyprus. They go there, they start on the one side in Salamis. That was a city that had several, apparently multiple Jewish synagogues. They ultimately make their way on this missionary journey, telling about Christ. Across the island, they go about 90 or 100 miles to the other side. You can't see it on the screen, but that that left side of the island is called Paphos. So log that in the back of your mind. We're going to read that in again in a moment. And now where we're picking up in a moment, they're going to sail from there. And they're going to go up into what we now call southern Turkey. So you see the northern part of the Mediterranean Sea. And they're going to land in a region, a region called Pamphylia. And there's going to be a city there called Perga. So kind of note that. Again, you just see these dots. Last week, some of you had a map. And some of you uh, were, were thinking ahead, right? And you, you tucked that away. How many of you saved that map from this, this good, smart way to go? I'm not saying anything about everybody else. I'm just saying smart on your part because we're going to be in this for a few weeks. All right. So they land at this region of Pamphylia. They hit this city of Perga. But what we're going to read is they don't really stay there. Something happens. uh, And they just move on up. And they're going to go to this second city um, called Antioch. And so we're kind of making our way through. And they're going to actually boomerang and make their way back. So last week we saw that they launched on the missionary journey. They went to Cyprus. We ended with this showdown between the Apostle Paul and this magician fella. Paul ends up casting blindness on him. The leading, most powerful man, the Roman leader of the whole island, ends up getting saved once he saw that Paul cast blindness on this man. And now he believed the message that Paul and Barnabas were preaching. So they got saved. So so one last thing I want to point out. Notice that they are going to sail northward. And I'm going to tip our hand. Verse 13 is coming up. John Mark is a young man that is with them on the journey, and he's going to leave. He's going to leave when they get up to southern Turkey, Asia Minor, Pamphylia, Perga. He's going to leave there. And so that's going to tell us 
to me, as I thought about this week, something happened during this journey that's going to make this young man leave and he's going to go back to Jerusalem. And apparently it happened at Perga because it makes sense to me. If he was going to leave anyway, why didn't he just leave from Cyprus and head back home? That would have been a much shorter trip. Why does he head 200 miles more, make that uh, uh, sail 200 miles more, only to turn around and go back when something happens? We don't know what it is. So with that in, in our, as our context, would you join me? Acts chapter number 13. And look at verse 13. We're going to read down. And we want to read down to verse 22. So let me, one more context. You ready? We're getting to Paul's sermon in the synagogue at Antioch of Pisidia. Okay, that's a lot of, but he's going to preach a synagogue sermon. And I believe that like Luke, who's our author, gave us Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. He gave us that message back in Acts 2. And he doesn't repeat over and over what Peter preaches. We just know that they preach the word. They preach the word. It was almost as though Luke writing this says, I'm going to give you a sample of what Peter preached to the Jews in chapter 2. And you just kind of reapply that. And I think he's doing the same thing here. So Paul is going to keep preaching and, and teaching him and Barnabas and later on him and a man named Silas. And they're going to preach and teach all these various places. And I think at the outset what Luke does is he gives us this message as a sample of what he preaches so that he, doesn't ha- he don't have space to keep repeating it over and over. So this is a sample message. And, te- and actually, the message this morning goes from like verse 16 to 41. And so we're not even getting into the main body. What we're doing today is really introducing, it's Paul's introduction to get where he really wants to get to, and that's verse 23. We're not going to get to verse 23. That's where he's getting at, but he needs to lay this foundation in his synagogue sermon to the Jews. Verse number 13, here we go. Now, Paul and his companions, we know who these are, Barnabas and John Mark, set sail from Paphos, we saw that on the map, and came to Perga in Pamphylia, that's that southern region of Turkey. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. We don't know the details. Why did he leave? We don't know. But they, Paul and Barnabas, went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, a different Antioch than where they started. So they get there. What kind of city is this? Well, we have a clue here. And you remember last week, we noted several things about what Paul does on his missionary journeys. He kind of always travels with a partner, and he travels with a protege. And we notice that he targets larger cities, cities that are large enough to have Jewish synagogues. And that's where he starts his ministry, generally. And then we notice that in his heart, his desire is to go where the gospel's not yet been preached. And then he moves on, having started a church, and he like, hits a city here and a city here. And his idea is that once the people there get saved and get just some germinated seed, that they, through evangelism, will fill in all the gaps. He can't preach in every little small town to every person. He's hitting all these big cities. So now we see that, verse number 14 in the middle. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down in Antioch of Pisidia. So they go and they sit down, like some of you are sitting here this morning. Uh, these people had no idea the man, the two men, but particularly the man, I believe the greatest Christian, obviously I'm not counting Jesus as in that idea, I believe the greatest Christian in the history of the world was this man, and he's sitting in their synagogue and they don't even know, and notice verse number 15, and this gives us some hint, what happens in the Jewish synagogue services, well here we have a little hint, after the reading from the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, After the reading from the law and the prophets, 
the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them. So there's Paul and Barnabas sitting in the, in the synagogue service. They have the Bible reading. They do that part of the service. And they've sent a message. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Either one of you guys want to say something? In other words, ladies and gentlemen, we're really blessed. We are really blessed. We've got a couple of uh, very important people here this morning. I don't know. Some have said perhaps Paul wore his rabbinical garments on purpose to open a door. I thought another option is maybe they went there earlier in the week, introduced themselves, knowing service is coming on Saturday. If you don't mind, we're going to visit. Oh, yeah, I'd love to have you. Uh, you guys are actually from Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, man, you seem like you know a lot about the Bible. Did you ever do any training? Done some. Yeah, yeah. I am actually uh, had some uh, rabbinical training. Really? What teacher did you have? My teacher is a fellow named Gamaliel. Gamaliel. Wait, like you, you, did you graduate? Yeah, I graduated. Top of the class. Yeah, I graduated. Um, kind of a, wait, you're not Saul of Tarsus that I've heard, like really went on this rampage against. Yeah, that's, that's me. Wow. And you, man, you just have a spirit about you. Ladies and gentlemen, it's awesome to have. We got these two great guys today. Hey, if either of you would like to preach, got something to say to the people to encourage them, now's a good time. Verse 16, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God. Listen, read that again. Men of Israel and, can I share something? I've read this, no kidding, hundreds of times. I've read this, this passage hundreds of times. I saw something, I wouldn't die for it, but I, I don't know why. I just saw it literally this morning in my last reading. I've often wondered, what is this motioning with his hand? And maybe as he's just so animated or quieting the crowd down. I don't know that it was that. I think, it, what if it's just this simple? Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God. Which to these people, they would go, what did he just do? Men of Israel, here's his message, here's his introduction. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. So God chose our fathers, He makes them great. They're down in Egypt, they're blessed, their crops. I'm not their crops, but their flocks and their herds are growing. And the number of people, they go down 75 and all, 75 people, and all of a sudden, there's tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and many, many, many. And apparently by the time they leave, there are two million people. So much so, the Egyptians are getting scared of them. And the Egyptians, like, wow, there's so many of them. We better put them in slavery. And they started oppressing them. And he doesn't even touch on all the details. Just watch what he does. Verse 17. The God... Of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Which caused the Egyptians to put them in slavery. And with uplifted arm, he, God, led them out of it. The great exodus. And so he's going through the history. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. The best guess, that, that, that's a very tricky phrase to translate apparently. I'm not a translation expert, but I've seen that translated differently. It's very understandable how it is here in the ESV. Apparently that 450 years is 
about 400 years of, of roughly 400 years of slavery, 40 years in the wilderness, about 10 years of conquering the land of Canaan and getting their land. About four, so now we're in verse 20. All this took about 450 years, Paul's preaching. And after that, again, we know Joshua helps them conquer the land. God uses him. And after that, he, God, gave them judges. So these 12 men until Samuel, the prophet. Samuel's unique in that Samuel is also like the last judge and this great prophet that starts this line of prophets. And so Paul's preaching Men of Israel, and you who fear God. And he's going through the history of Israel, and they're familiar with it, and he's heading somewhere on, a, on purpose. They come out of slavery, 40 years in the wilderness. They conquer the land. God gives them judges for a few hundred years. These deliverers to come, get them out of trouble from the oppression of the other nations that they hadn't yet conquered. Verse number 21. And then it gets to Samuel. Then, while Samuel the prophet is there, they ask for a king. We want a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. By the way, this is the man that probably Saul himself, Saul is his Jewish name, Paul is his Roman name. Paul is later going to write that he's of the tribe of Benjamin, no doubt named after this king. He doesn't really say anything negative about him, but he just writes, they asked for a king. God let them have the king that they wanted. They chose Saul, and God let them have that. But verse number 22, Paul says, he preaches, And when he, God, had removed him, removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. And what you don't see on the screen is verse 23, where we go. This is where he's heading. Of this man's, you see how everything's been, i got to get to David. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So he's wanting to get to that, but he's, he's doing this, getting the history. So would you notice a few things with me this morning? Number one, uh, let's, let's hit the, the, the departure of John Mark. So John Mark is going to depart. Paul and, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to, the, to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So if you have your Bible open, you have an advantage, I'm going to invite you to go along with me just for a moment. You got your Bible, go back, if you would, chapter 11. The end of chapter 11, I think last verse. Would you go there quickly? Remember there was this famine, and the people at Antioch took up famine relief, and they're going to send it down to Jerusalem. Look at chapter 11, verse 30. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Everybody see that? Send it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Chapter 12, flip over, look at the last verse of chapter 12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. So they took the famine relief. Barnabas and Saul took it down. Barnabas and Saul returned. They bring John Mark with them. You're in chapter 13. See that's the end of chapter 12? You got your Bible open. Look at chapter 13, verse number 1. Now they were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, and he names five of them. Watch. Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manaean, and Saul. Everybody catch that? Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manaean, and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul. Look down at verse number 7 of chapter 13. They encounter this magician, verse number 7, this magician. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, who was a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul. Did you catch that? Now, I know some of you are already seeing where we're heading, right? 
Did you catch chapter number 11, verse 30? They sent Barnabas and Saul. Chapter number 12, Barnabas and Saul came back. Antioch Church has all these leaders. Holy Spirit says separate Barnabas and Saul. So they're listed, Barnabas and Saul. And then here's this man. He calls for Barnabas and Saul. And then we get to chapter number 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions. Did everybody catch the switch? Something has happened, and Luke is giving us a clue. There's a new dynamic. Something has happened, and I think Custer captures it. Stuart Custer writes the following, quote, listen. The mission through Cyprus had revealed Paul's unique gifts in dealing with Gentiles as well as the Jews. From now on, he, Paul, will be the natural spokesman for the team. In other words, apparently, as they go on the trip, they go to Barnabas's homeland of Cyprus. They work their way through, but just, just by living... Apparently, Barnabas is older, but it just becomes crystal clear. Not just the showdown with Elymas that Paul did, but the whole tone is... Paul is really the leader of this, this mission, and he obviously takes the lead from here on. And I think that maybe have had some ripple effects. Don't know what happened at Perga. We don't know what happened, but in two chapters, I'm not going to dig into it now, but in two chapters it's going to become very apparent that John Mark leaving was unexpected and it's very much unappreciated. It was wrong. He quit. John Mark quit. He quit on the mission. He quit on the team. And it really is going to bother Paul. And they're going, he and Barnabas are going to have some friction in a couple of chapters from now. Um, and again, it's over this issue. So we don't know why John Mark quit. But we know that it did not set well with Paul. So here's what that tells us. I don't know if this was a one-time event or had it been building. It probably was building. I'm going to throw this out. Something's going on in John Mark to where he's laying awake at night, probably day after day, thinking, I wish I hadn't come. I wish I hadn't come. I wish I wasn't here. And finally, he just, I don't know, does he just leave without telling him? Or does he have a talk with his Uncle Barnabas? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm heading back. Why? What's, I don't know that that happened, but was there that exchange? Who knows? Something happened that John Mark left, and there's a lot of speculation and we don't know. I'm going to give you six things. I can't say any one of these things is the reason. My hunch is somewhere within one of these things or two or all of these things, we have the reason why I left. I'm going to offer the best reasons that have been offered. Here we go. Ready? Why did this young man leave? Possibly he resented the leadership shifting from his relative Barnabas over to Paul. That's not what he signed up for when he, again, Barnabas is closely related to him. His mother, uh, possibly Barnabas' sister or cousin, very close relationship. And this, he comes, man, he leaves Jerusalem and heads up to Antioch. And, man, I get to spend time with Uncle Barnabas. It's going to be great. And now he's not the leader anymore. Maybe that's it. Maybe. Secondly, maybe it's this simple. Why does this young man leave? Maybe he's just homesick. He's homesick. Again, we've seen the clues. He came from a wealthy family. Maybe he's missing the big house and the servants, and all of a sudden, they're not around. It's just us and all the buzz of, of Jerusalem, and the church kind of comes in and out of our house all the time, and maybe it's a missing mom, and mom, maybe he justified it in his mind. Maybe he did this. Mom's a widow and needs me, and I need to be heading back, and who knows? Maybe he was homesick. Number three, maybe he realizes, man, the journey that's getting ready to happen, it's going to be very difficult. It's going to be very hard, and that makes him want to quit. Three other possibilities. Here's one. Throwing it out. Maybe the jobs that he's been doing are not exactly what he expected in his mind. It's more practical, more menial. 
And it's not as spiritual, not as pastoral, not as glamorous. Like, yeah, we're going on this adventure. It's going to be glamorous. Man, we're going to have all this. And then it gets down to like he's carrying stuff and he's cleaning stuff and he's cooking stuff. And it's like, that's not what I signed up. I want out. And he leaves. Notice his leaving means they now have to do more. I thought about... uh, those of you, and I know it's not all of you, we'll keep referring to it. Those of you that went to Uganda, I'm picturing us going through the airports with not only our own luggage, but the other luggage of all the material. Had someone, had two or three people just decided, yeah, I'm leaving, you know, like, just, I'm leaving. You know what that meant? Okay, stack them up higher. Here we go. <laughs> More for the rest of us. This is what Paul and Barnabas have. I don't know this one. Some have offered it. I hope it isn't this one. Number five, maybe John Mark had a deep, hidden, inner prejudice against Gentiles that he didn't even realize until he gets out there and all of a sudden he realizes the talk among the mission team and the direction that it's heading. And He's only ever grown up in Jerusalem. I mean, surrounded by Judaism all the time. And there's constantly the Jews are feeding this narrative of against Gentiles. And now he's actually out there and like, wait, we're not asking them to become Jews. And like, maybe that's not sitting so well with him. And then the last one I'll throw out is, maybe he was afraid. Afraid of what? Possibly any one of four things. Getting malaria. Afraid of persecution. Maybe he was afraid of bandits, robbers. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, Paul goes over all these difficulties he's had in his Christian life. And one of them, he says, often in danger by robbers. And write this down, the Taurus Mountains. The Taurus Mountains are lying ahead of them. We're leaving Perga. We're not ministering here. We're heading up to Pisidian, Antioch. That's a long ways away. And it's a high altitude. And it's a rough road. And is that what's heading our way? And maybe he's afraid. Persecution, which happens. Paul's going to get stoned. Possibly dies. That's persecution. I mean, like stoned. Maybe he sees it coming. Let me play off of that first word that you wrote in that last note. Okay, I'm throwing it out. And I know this is probably a little more background than you wanted, but that's what you get when you come to Grace View. More background than you really wanted. <laughs> that's terrible. All right. Years and years ago, there was a man named William Ramsey who actually did research. I mean, he went and lived it and tracked the journeys of Paul, the, the, the boat rides, went through the whole thing. He made a suggestion that, honestly, three or four people that I read after this week brought it into their thinking as a possibility of something that happened. I'm going to throw it out to you. Ready? William Ramsey suggested that when Paul landed at Pamphylia, there on the coastal regions, that Paul contracted malaria. And the kind that they had there would result in these virulent, recurring fevers. Severe fevers. You feel awful. And it comes with this excruciating prostrating headache that's described as if you had like a a steel rod literally driven in through your forehead. Like horrible, horrible headaches. And Paul has contracted this. And so to get away from that coastal region, one of the things they end up doing is going up to this altitude, 3,600 feet of altitude up to Pisidian Antioch, which apparently wasn't part of the original plan, but we're shifting. And maybe that's why John Mark quit. And you're like... Sounds like a nice story, bro. Where in the world did you get that from? Hold your spot here. Go over, if you would, Galatians. You want to see it? Galatians chapter 4. And let's see where in the world would Ramsey get such an idea. Galatians chapter 4. And the reason we're doing Galatians is because this is the region that Pisidian Antioch 
And the real thrust of the first missionary journey is in this region of Galatia. So now Paul is writing back to the Galatians that end up that, that got saved on the first missionary journey. And watch what he writes in verse 12. Watch it. Brothers, brothers and sisters, I entreat you. Become as I am. Paul's talking to these people. He's one to the Lord. I entreat you. Become as I am. For I also became as you are. You did me no wrong. Like he's, You see what he's saying? Something's happened. come between us. These people, these heretics have come after me. And now they have you doubting me and angry at me. What's happened? I became as you are, become like I am. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Did everybody just catch what he wrote? Y'all know that what drove me there was this bodily ailment. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. Oh, dude, that guy's ridiculous. Get him out of here. I might catch what he... No. You did not scorn or despise me, but receive me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So did I catch two things he just did there? What he's saying is, you know that what brought me to you originally was a, a, a physical ailment. So much so, you would have given me your eyes. And the thought is that Paul had some kind of eye condition. Maybe it made him tough to look at. Maybe it flared up and got worse. And that's where William Ramsey gets some of his idea. Back to Acts. Let's finish out verse 13 quickly. And John Mark left them. Watch verse 14. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. That little phrase... Again, I'm going to borrow one more time from Custer. Custer writes, get it, listen. Luke passes over a staggering journey of over a hundred miles across the Taurus Mountains without comment. A hundred miles journey, 3,600 feet altitudes where he's going to finish in this city that's no doubt lower lying than some of the places they have to go. And here's all he writes about it. John Mark or John left them, returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Pergamon, came to Antioch and Pisidia. Like, he's like, I don't have time to tell you all the stuff. They, they, like, they journeyed. It took a long time, over 100 miles in that little phrase. I've heard about the Taurus, Taurus Mountains multiple times, and finally I Googled it this week. Could we have a picture of, of those mountains just to give you? There. Here we are. John Mark left. Possibly Paul's feeling awful. Got to get out of this low-lying region. We got to get up over that. Keep, that's just the first wave. We've got to travel through that. You've got 100 miles of this. Can we have the next uh, picture? This is the Via Sebast, I believe, that goes across from Ephesus across Asia Minor. This is an ancient Roman road, and this is an idea of what they would have traveled on making their way through these things. Uh, here's my point. If what William Ramsey offered is true... And Paul has this awful condition, and he refuses to quit, and John Mark does for lesser things. When Paul actually has a reason to quit, you can imagine why he's really frustrated at the young man for leaving. So, write this note, and we'll move to our second point. What do we learn from this verse 13? We learn that, note this in your mind, missionaries must be mature Christians. Missionaries need to be mature Christians. You don't send like brand new baby Christians, weak Christians on mission trips. Why, Jeff? Number one, they represent Christ. Missionaries represent Christ. They need to know the doctrine. They need to live for the Lord. They're not going to be perfect, 
But you can't have people living sinful lives because when they come into a place they've never heard about Christianity or Christ, everything they're going to learn is going to come from these people. And so you need mature Christians to do it. Does that make sense? Number two, the church is supporting them. And so you don't want to waste the church's very limited resources on immature people. And number three, you're very likely going to encounter hardship on the missionary journeys. And so mature Christians need to. It's going to be hard on mature Christians that's why mission boards today, they validate and they test and they do a lot, of, a lot of evaluation. They don't just, oh, you want to go to the mission field? Let's send you off. No, you, we're going to find out, are you of the quality that needs to be sent for these reasons? You're going to represent Christ. Money is going to be spent on you. Don't need you just quitting at the first time. So here's what tells me. If, and some of you have done this. If you ever go on a mission trip, be it your life or a short term Expect hardship. Expect it. Does that make sense? You have hardship in your normal life here. And yet in our normal life here, we consciously and subconsciously rid our lives of the hard places. We try to smooth them over and do away with them. You're getting out of your element, going to a foreign field in a whole different schedule. Expect it. And you're going to go share the gospel. And, of course, the enemies are going to oppose you. So you should expect opposition and hardship. Not be, you ought to be shocked if you go on a missionary trip and like, man, everything went smooth. That was weird. It's why on our last one, I, I saw Larry earlier. I forget where, 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 you, where you at. I saw, there, uh, yes. I don't know who you said, said it, but you kept referring on our last one. Uh, it's the mission trip within the mission trip. It's what God's doing in us to prepare us to go do something through us. It's hard. But to his credit, let me just say this. John Mark quit the mission team. He didn't quit Christ. He didn't quit Jesus. He quit the mission trip. And two years later, this young guy's ready to go again. And that's encouraging. You can blow it. You can blow it. And God can pick you up, dust you off, and make you ready to go again. And we'll talk about what happens when we get to chapter 15. Number two this morning, Paul targets a, a dual audience. Paul targets a dual audience. Verse number 14, John left them, returned to Jerusalem. Can I just start with the first few words of 14? But they went on. John left. But they went on. Hey, Graceview, um, I wish that what, I was about, what I'm about to say was not true. I wish it were not true. And I literally, I, I don't know the future. But do you realize that this time next year, there are some people in this room right now who are following the Lord or beginning to follow the Lord or serving the Lord? And a year from now, they're not going to be following the Lord and serving the Lord faithfully. Some are going to quit. That fact should not discourage the rest of us. That fact should in, entrench the rest of us. Like knowing that some are going to quit and stop following the Lord faithfully and serving the Lord faithfully. Then we have to do it all the more. You say, Jeff, you really believe some? Oh, I know it. I've been in church all my life. Several people here this morning. I don't know who they are. Here's all I would say. Make sure it's not you. Make sure it's not you that quits. I wrote this question. Is your faithfulness to Christ depending on someone else? Answer that in your mind. Is your faithfulness to Christ depending on someone else? Is there someone in your family, if they quit following Christ, then you will quit following Christ? 
Ask yourself this morning, why am I here? Is there someone here that if they stop serving the Lord and they stop being faithful to God's house, then I will too. How many mamas across Anderson County, if they stop going to church, then the family's going to stop going to church because everybody knows they just basically go because mama expects us to go or daddy expects us to go. I ask again, is your faithfulness to Christ depending on someone else? Because if that's the case, then it really isn't faithfulness to Christ. It's faithfulness to that person. Careful what you do with your heart. I hope hope you have a situation like, man, if everybody else in my family stops serving the Lord, I will keep on serving. Don't quit. Don't quit. Somebody here this morning, you may be on the verge, like, kind of my last time, I'm not really planning on it, but I'm getting really weak. Don't quit. It matters. Stay with it. Get closer with God's people. Don't drift further away. That's the wrong move. Jump in with us. Serve the Lord faithfully. Verse number 15, 14. They get to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath they went to the synagogue, and here we see it again. Paul, I saw last week, and we noted, boy, he keeps wanting to minister to the Jews. He ministers to the Jews. His main ministry is to the Gentiles, and yet he starts at the synagogue. Why? Last week we learned two things, and I need to put a third one with it. Do you remember these? He pursues ministry to the Jews because it's right. And because it's wise. But number three, if you'll write this down, Paul always, when possible, when Jews are around, he starts his ministry to the Jews first because it's his undying burden. It's his burden. It will not go away. This is his main. My calling, Paul would say, is to the Gentiles, and I love them, and I want to make that a good offering to the Lord. I want to do the best job I can with the Gentiles, but my heart is toward my own people. In fact, he says that in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they would be saved. In chapter 9 of Romans, he says something staggering. He says, I tell you the truth. Get this. I'm telling you the truth. I lie not. The Holy Spirit's my witness. If I could be accursed for my people, then I would be if they would go to heaven. In other words, God, if you would let me go to hell so that all the Jews would go to heaven, I'll sign up right now. And I've said this before. I don't have that burden. There's a very short list of people that I would think about having that burden for because eternity is a long time and the lake of fire is really hot. Paul, he can't help it. He has a great burden. So I'm going to ask you this morning, you ought to be asking the Lord, Lord, give me a strong burden for some people. Paul had it. Now in verse 15, we have a glimpse. So what in the world happens in these synagogues? What are they doing there? Right? What are they doing in there? Look at verse 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, brothers, if you have any word of of encouragement to the people, say it. And they stand up, and Paul teaches. So here's what I've read. I'm going to offer it. You ready? Apparently, the typical order of a synagogue service was they would begin with the Shema, reciting, rehearsing, bathing in it. It's Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So they begin by rehearsing the Shema. And then they have more prayers, other kinds of prayers. And then they would have reading out of the law, first five books of the Old Testament. And then they would have reading out of the rest of the Old Testament sections. 
I've read one place that they were on a triennial basis trying to read. Synagogues basically would read through the books of the law, those five books, every three years. Every three years they would have read through it and reading it. And then after the reading of the law and the prophets, a section in each, then someone would stand and expound the scriptures typically on what was read. And then they would finish with this blessing as the people go out into their week. And that's a typical order. And that's what we see here. So that I, I glean from that. It tells me, borrowing from our, our, the people of God in the Old Testament, and they're in the intertestamental period, when God's people meet, there should be prayers, and there should be reading of the Bible, and there should be exposition of what was read. This is what should be happening when God's people meet, and this is what they did. Verse 16, one thought, and I've already hit on it. And it's the point you see, number two. So Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. It was shocking. Blew them away when Paul stands and addresses the Jews and includes the Gentile God-fearers who are sitting in the back. Shocking. I mean, I, I promise you that morning, because this has never been done in any of the synagogue meetings at this place. I promise you no one ever addressed them. Gentiles who were not yet Jewish proselytes were called God-fearers if they came and sat in the back of the synagogue. They were just kind of evaluating everything. In other words, the process would be, the teaching and the preaching would be to God's people, the Jews. And if you want to get in on it, then you need to get you and your family circumcised and you'll start observing the law. And we'll baptize you and you make it known you want to be a Gentile proselyte or Jewish proselyte. And then you can move up here and then the, the teaching will apply to you. But if you're sitting back there, you're just kind of evaluating, hearing the, good, hearing the reasons why you would make such a move. And it would take different people different amounts of time. But Paul comes on the scene and he says, what I'm preaching this morning is good news. It's for all of you people here, but it's also for all of you back there. And they're like, what? why is he talking to them? My goal this morning is not to try to talk you into becoming Jewish. I have a higher hope for you. I have something better than that. You do not have to become Jewish to get in on what I'm offering you this morning. And again, the whole place would have been shocked when Paul does this. Just before we go to the third point, I need to offer this. I'm throwing it out. And I hope you'll get it. Please listen. Paul stands and says, Men of Israel and you who fear God. What I'm saying applies to both. Watch. Christian, be careful when you read the Bible. Be careful that when you read the Bible or teach the Bible... That you don't just assume that everything it says applies to everyone because it doesn't. Be careful, Christians, when you're reading the Bible and what the Bible says to the Jews. You just take it as if it's talking about you. And just like, like God owes you what he wrote here to the Jews. Oh, he has to do that. I've claimed that verse. Be careful. You're interpreting it wrong and you're going to have some wrong applications. You're going to possibly be very disappointed when it doesn't happen. And there's another one. One more thing. Christians, be careful. And I think this one subconsciously. If we're not careful, we're going to read the Bible. And we're going to subconsciously ascribe what it says clearly for believers, for Christians. We're just going to ascribe that on our unsaved family and friends. What the Bible says to Christians, we just subconsciously assume it of people we love. And the reason we do that is because we want peace. Subconsciously, we want peace. And so... Well, if someone were to say, hey, you just, oh, well, yeah, I, I just, I just, and, and when they die, we just automatically start ascribing promises of the Bible. There's no fruit in their life. Don't do that. Can I encourage you? Don't do that. 
You're saying, but I'm doing it to have peace in my life. I think it would be better if you'll be honest with yourself. You're believing a lie. Don't believe the lie, and that may motivate you to have a hard, hard discussion that you don't want to have because you keep putting the salve of the lie on your conscience. Oh, they're fine. They're going to go to heaven. Don't do it. You say, but it's painful. Be honest with the Scripture. Number three. Paul highlights Israel's history. This is all his introduction. It's his introduction. He highlights Israel's history. So if you would, look at verse number 17. Can I kind of real quickly put some context to it? And I know some of you would be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And some of you would get all of these right. Some of you would get all of these right. Look at verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. What book of the Bible did that happen? Genesis. Chapter. Anybody know the chapter? Chapter 12. The God. So let's. <clears throat> here's Paul's message. He's starting in Genesis 12. The God, of our, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. So he skipped over a lot. He jumps down to when they're in Egypt. And man, they're multiplying down there. It's going to make the Egyptians nervous and afraid. What book is that in? It could kind of be the end of Genesis, but really it's in Exodus. The 75 start just becoming blessed. They're multiplying. He skips over the specifics of the slavery and he says, And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. What book of the Bible? Exodus. <laughs> yes. He, God's power with all these plagues. He leads the people. So he starts at Genesis 12. He goes through Exodus. Now watch verse 18. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. What books is that? It's all of them, really. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's that 40 years. Verse 19. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan. What book is that? Who led that? What human being? This is Joshua. And he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that he gave them judges. What book? Okay. Judges. The book of Judges. Until hmm, Samuel the prophet came. What happens in Samuel? Verse number 21. They asked for a king. God gave them Saul. That's First Samuel, verse number 22. And when he had removed him and raised up David to be their king, David shows up on the scene in First Samuel. He actually becomes king. He's anointed here. He becomes appointed and recognized by the people in Second. So here's what Paul's doing. i got to get to Jesus. To do that, I need to get to David. But I'm going to start in chapter 12 of Genesis, and I'm just going to hit highlights. All i got time for is highlights. Four things. Number one. God's choice of Israel in verse number 17. God's choice of Israel. Here's his message. God's choice of Israel comes out of verse 17. Paul preaches, hey, to you, men of Israel, and you who fear God, the God of this people of Israel chose our fathers. Isn't that so easy just to read that and like, we just keep right on going, not even thinking what that means. This affects a lot. By the way, warning, if you haven't picked up already, today's message is going to be heavy on teaching and lots of moving parts and lots of details. But if you'll ask the Lord to teach you, you may be able to like, hey, this actually is relevant and timely and it's helping me. That's not a goosebump moment day, but I'm kind of putting some pieces together. Just saw, well, we're starting in Genesis 12 and kind of his outline here is going through 2 Samuel. Okay, we're kind of learning some things. <clears throat>
The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. So God, watch, is the God of the whole world. But in a more particular sense, he's the God of the Jews. He's the God of Israel. Why? Because no other nation in the world has a covenant with God. The United States doesn't. No, we don't. No, we don't. I believe we have a lot of Christians in the United States, but we do not have a covenant. We are not God's chosen nation. Well, we're his chosen people now. No, you're not. We're not. We're not, we don't have anything to run to that we have a covenant. The United States does not have a No other nation, just one, has a covenant with God. Now, here's the key. God chose them. They did not choose him. He chose them, not, pay attention, not because they deserved it. He chose them because he loved them, and he loved them because he chose to love them. And you're like, what? God chose them because he loved them. He loved them because he chose to love them. Check it out in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Don't have time to look at it. He didn't choose them because they deserved it. Every person who has a relationship with God of grace that ends up in eternal life, all of them are just like Abraham, the first Jew. All of us are the same. Abraham was not pursuing God and seeking God. God came to him. Abraham was living in sin and idolatry when God initiated everything and came to Abraham and saved him, not because he deserved it, but because God chose to do it. And so here's where this leaves us. I had this conversation with someone a few, a few a couple weeks ago. The Jews never choke on the doctrine of God's choice and election. They don't choke over that. They rehearse it every week. They know they are God's chosen people. means God passed over the rest of the nations and he chose that one. So they don't choke on the doctrine of election. So here at Graceview, we don't choke over the doctrine of election. We don't hunt it. We don't go hunting it. We don't go to seed on it. What we do here is we just try to preach through the Bible, and here's what happens. It comes up again and again. Rarely do you have to go very long. We don't hunt for it when it comes up. We don't dodge it. We don't water it down. We just go with it. Now, this morning, I'm not really hitting into it heavy. You know why? Because it's coming up again at the end of the chapter in a stronger way, and I'm I'm assuming the Lord will want us to probably hit that a little harder when it comes for now the Jews are chosen and they know it number two not only God's choice of Israel number two verses 17 to 20 notice God's blessing of Israel Paul's goal is to get to David so he can get to Jesus he doesn't have time to hit all the blessings what does he do God multiplied him down in Egypt God ends up leading him out of Egypt gave him the land And gave him great leadership, judges, and ultimately this man after God's own heart, this king. So he just has time. Notice what he doesn't hit. Paul doesn't say Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, doesn't mention any of them. Watch. And all the blessings of God, he's clearly hitting the blessings of God. He doesn't mention the plagues, the last one, the Passover, the death of the firstborn. He doesn't talk about the crossing of the Red Sea miraculously, crossing of the Jordan River later, the manna, the water from the rock. He doesn't mention all that. He just, like, wow, we got to get, got to keep moving. God bless them. But I don't have time to preach on all of verses 17 to 19, but I do want to hit for a few minutes verse 19. Look at it. Look at verse 19. Not a goosebump moment this morning, but I believe a timely moment. 
so in verse 17, with uplifted arm, God brought them out of Egypt. And for 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land. There'll be a few of you who'll be like, didn't know this. And there's going to be a lot of you go, oh yeah. Throughout the world, right now, there is a massive divide. And I mean, there are billions of people on this side. There are billions of people on this side. And there's billions of people. You've got like eight. Billions on this side. Billions on this side. And you've got billions that don't really know. Some are sitting here this morning. Maybe billions of people, some of the billions of people are here on one side and maybe a few of the billions of people that are on this side are here this morning. Or we'll watch this at some point. I don't know. You say, what's the big divide? What's the big debate? Whether the, over whether the Jewish people should occupy the land that we call the Holy Land. Should they be occupying that land? And if so, how much of it should they be occupying? And the thing is, people's opinion on this issue, y- y'all, y'all have seen this, it's going on in New York City and Paris and all these big cities around the world, and people getting these Palestinian flags, and how horrible the Jews are, and talking about the land, and there's this idea of from the river to the sea, the Palestinians should have that, and the Jews should be moved out, and have this thing called the West Bank, and over here the Gaza Strip, and like, whose land is it? Well, there's a big debate. And people's opinion is typically formed on when they start their timeline. If you start your timeline five years ago, you may believe one thing. If you start your timeline 20 years ago, or in 1973, or 1967, or 1948, or 1914, or in the 1200s, or the 1100s, or in the 600s, it depends on when you start your timeline, that's going to affect what opinion you end up having. Should they be there or not, or how much of it should they be occupying? But the good thing about the Bible, verse 19 clears it all up. So I encourage you to align your thoughts and opinion and your discussions with verse 19. After destroying seven nations, the land of Canaan, he, God, gave them their land as an inheritance. So verse 19, along with the Old Testament, multiple places, are very clear that the land known as Canaan in the Old Testament or Israel in the Old Testament belongs to the Jews. Why? Pay attention. Watch this. Because in 1400 B.C., God took the land that previously belonged to seven nations. God gave that land to the Jews, to the nation of Israel, for two purposes. Number one, it was a judgment against these seven nations for all of their sinfulness. They refused to stop it, and there was a time clock running. These people are down in Egypt in slavery, but your time's about to end. God brings them out. There's a 40-year delay, but then God gives their land to these people. And that happened in 14. And the second reason is... Not only was it a judgment against these nations for their sin, but it was a fulfillment of promises that God had made to Abraham. And I only had space to write the word Abraham on your notes. If you want to the side, don't just write Abraham. Write Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because some would say, yeah, right. It promises to Abraham. And they go this other whole section of Abraham's descendants as though the land is there. That's not what the Bible clearly says. It's for Isaac's line. And it's not for Esau's line, it's for Jacob's line and Jacob's 12 sons. And I realize what I'm saying would not be popular with some people. It would be very unpopular. So as you're writing that, I want to make a a little bit of an admission and drill down just a little deeper. Let's start with an admission. 
There's a lot to write there, isn't there? This is one of those notes that I remember, like, Jeff, you're putting too many blanks, but I kind of like, eh, I, want to, eh. I don't want anybody to sit there and guess all the blanks before service. I want them to have to wait. If you get all those blanks right, you, you get A+, plus, right? If you guessed all those. So here's the admission. If you can write and hear at the same time. Admittedly, the land has not always been theirs. It wasn't their land originally. But listen, for the last 3,400 years, the land has been Israel's. Why? So I'm going to boil it down real simple. For 3,400 years, the land called Israel, Canaan, and the Old Testament, and more than that, belongs to the Jews. Why? Because God says so. That's it. God says so. <laughs> Write this down. You cannot truly explain the nation of Israel apart from God. You cannot explain the nation of Israel. You cannot explain them apart from God. Like we know the exact moment they became a nation when God said, uh, you, I'm starting a new nation with you, Abraham. There's the start. You say, Jeff, what do you mean you can't explain? Hang with me. I trust you'll hang with me here. You can't explain them apart from God because they should be extinct. Practically and humanly speaking, they should be extinct. To my knowledge, there are no people groups on earth that exist for the sole purpose of destroying and annihilating and making extinct the Brazilian people. Or the New Zealanders. Or the Portuguese. Uh, what is y'all's number one goal? We are here to destroy the Canadians. I exist to see the Canadians destroyed. I don't know of any people groups like that. But for hundreds of years, many people groups have taken on their sole purpose of living as to destroy the nation of Israel. Why? God, God has chosen this nation and the devil hates God's chosen people. And he's always raising up. There are people groups today. And here's how they prove it. These people, they live today. They exist for this. They love their kids. But their hatred for the Jews is more than their love for their kids. So much so, we'll give up our kids. We'll do the one-for-one -one trade. Life for life. They will make that trade. Instead of just like, wow, can't we just get it? No. We hate them more than, wow. This has been for millennia. They shouldn't exist. You say, well, then why do they keep existing? You don't have time. Would you just glance? Just, if, you, if, you're, if it's all on the same page, do you see verse 17? I'm going to include verse 23. Do you know that between verse 17 and 23, that's seven verses. Fourteen times, here's what you'll find. The word God, he, my, or I. Personal pronouns back. So we have the title God. He, talking about God, my, talking about God, I, 14 to every verse in those seven verses has some reference to God. And verse 22, I believe it is, has like six of them. You can't explain. They shouldn't be here, but God. God keeps looking out for them. So here's, as I finish this little rant that I'm on, that's timely from the text. I realize what, what people would say. Opposition. Here's what they would say. Why do you think it belongs to them? Because the Bible says so. But we don't believe the Bible. 
You idiots. Wait, you got your little book that gives it to them? We don't believe that. What do you say about that? I say, you not believing the Bible doesn't stop it from being true. It's still true. And then I know that would infuriate them. No, oh, you, oh. you can't just like get something out of a book and say that land belongs to them in per- perpetuity. Yeah, we, I don't benefit from it. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. But I don't believe the Bible. But it's still true. And I know that enrages some people. So would you take this note quickly? Yes, God has temporarily allowed other nations to occupy the land of Israel. Yes, because of Israel's sin. There's been seasons of that. And yes, Israel has been far from perfect. We're not endorsing all the things that the Jews, they are living in sin right now. They are rejecting their Christ. And they've paid for it many, many times. But even though the land's been occupied temporarily by other people and they've been very imperfect, that still doesn't change. Genesis 12 and multiple other passages. And if you want to write this one down, Genesis chapter 20, or no, Exodus 23, verses 23 to 31, you ought to go home and look it up. And that kind of tells you the boundaries that God has said, this is going to be your property. That's there whether you like it or not. And I realize people can say, again, hello, preacher, we don't believe the Bible. To which I would say, have you ever noticed they keep coming back? They should not exist. No other nation has people hunting them down like these people. But they keep... Yeah, it's because they artificially get bumped up by these Europeans in these crusades. And then the British Empire. And then you got the big bad bull of the United States hanging around there. Always interfering with everything. Hey, listen. If God chooses to use other nations sometimes. And sometimes he doesn't use other nations. He just lets Israel take care of their own business. Bottom line. You can say you don't believe, believe the Bible. They keep coming back to their land. You can't get rid of them. It's theirs. And the second thing I realize people would say is this. Well, that isn't fair. That doesn't sound fair. To which I would say, it's God. God is sovereign. God makes the rules. God can do anything he wants. God can give land to whoever he wants to give land to. In fact, I would say God giving physical land on earth to the Jews is a small thing when you put it side by side with God giving eternal life to some people. God makes the rules. I've hit that. I've hit that. Let's go to number three. Very quickly, would you notice God's patience? God's patience. Verse number 18. So he brings them out out of the land of Egypt, and for about 40 years he put up with them. You see that phrase? Just look at it quickly, verse 43, or verse 18. For about 40 years he put up with. That that watch this. That little phrase he put up with. I'm not a Greek expert, but I've read some who are, right? I play one on TV. Right? No. Some people that are experts in this, here's what they've noticed. That phrase he put up with actually means he bore up. And what it means, it can be taken this way or this way. The ESV translators obviously have taken it this way. What it can mean is God bore up under the care, the load of the care of the children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. It can mean he carried their, their, the burden of their provision and their protection. Context. Largest city in Georgia is Atlanta. Anybody know what county Atlanta is mostly contained in. Fulton. Fulton County has 15 cities. Fulton County's population is a little less than 1.1 million people. 
Do you know what has to happen to feed Atlanta and Fulton County for one day? In the wilderness, God has two million roughly people in a wilderness. There's no water. There's no crops. And yet God is like, I got this. He didn't feed and water them for a day. He provided for them for 40 years. God bore under that. I'll take this on. Their shoes don't wear out. Their clothes don't wear out. Now they didn't get new fashions, but don't need new stuff. This is amazing. Same pair of shoes, 40 years. This is awesome. Food, a miracle every day. Now the other way you could take it is God put up with. Meaning their nonsense and their sin and their griping and their complaining for 40 years. Their food arrived by a miracle. Their water from a rock. Where that, that rock come from? Where'd all the... That, God. Miracle food, miracle water every day and yet they complain. Every day a miracle and yet they complain. Which one of those two interpretations is true? They're both. You see which one they went with. Quickly, look at verse 21. Then they asked for a king. Israel has this theocracy. It's a theocracy where God is their ruler. But all the other nations have kings. And their kings go out to battle. And we like the look of that. And Lord, so here comes Samuel. Hey, Samuel, we ask God, we want a king. We want an earthly king. And Samuel's like, no, you don't. God's not said anything about a king. And then he goes and says, God, they're asking for a king. And finally God's like, listen, Samuel, it's nothing against you. It's against me. They don't want me leading them anymore. So get them their little king. And they found this guy who's probably about seven foot tall. And he looked really impressive physically, but spiritually he was really weak. And so their choice, the people's choice, was Saul. But when God had removed him, God put up his man, David. And that's our last point. Number four, God's appointment of David is verse 22. God's appointment of David, verse 22. All this is leading to next week's message where Paul wants to get to David so he can talk about his special chosen descendant, the great king that is coming that we know is Jesus. But to do so, he needs a springboard, and that's David. And they're all familiar with King David. So, I could really bog down in two thoughts here, and I'm going to try to hit them quickly. What does this mean? You all ready? Let's talk about David just for a moment. This, God says, I found in him a man after my heart. What's that? What does that mean? Years and years ago, my pastor, and I've preached this here before more in depth, and I'll not do it nearly as well or take as long this morning. My pastor preached years ago and gave me, put in my head the thought that David had the most unique heart of anybody. This man's being, his core, had these qualities that literally are the qualities like God's heart, God's core, God's being. You don't have it on handout. I didn't have room. But I just want you, if you want to write down the side, David had a heart like a shepherd. David had a heart of a shepherd. He had a shepherd's heart. You remember when he was a boy, he's watching his dad, the other brothers doing their thing. He's watching dad's sheep. I mean, he loved. Listen, David had just a heart like God. He's very content. He loves these sheep. He knows each one. He protects them. He provides for them. He has forethought for them. He just wouldn't surprise me if he didn't talk to them. See, Western shepherds, 
drive their sheep with dogs. Eastern shepherds lead their sheep by knowing them and calling the names of the leaders. And so David knows his sheep and he calls their name and here they come and they follow him and he takes them to all the good places. If anything ever tries to threaten his sheep, man, they got to deal with David. He's got a shepherd's heart. God has a shepherd's heart toward his people. Second, if you want to write it down, David had the heart of a poet. I don't have this. I mean a poet. You just read, you just saw Psalm 145. He's down there, he's watching his sheep, they're grazing, everything looks good and it's safe. And what's he doing? He's writing. He's thinking about God, he's meditating on God, and he's worshiping God. Listen, this man loves God more than anything. Piper pointed out one one time that God's passion, we're talking a man with a heart like God's, God's passion is for his own what? Glory. Say it again. What's God passionate most about? His own glory. You hear that and say, well, then God's the biggest narcissist in the universe. No, God deserves it. And his glory is the best thing he could ever show you. So, yes, he's passionate about his glory. David is passionate, not about his own glory. He's passionate about God's glory. He loves God. He, and he writes to the Lord. Personal. It's inspired. This ain't like lying. Like, this make a nice little song. This will sound fancy like I'm spiritual. This is real. God would know if he, man, he's a lover. He's a lover. Third, he's a musician. He wrote music. He sang music. He played it. Music is powerful. God loves music. David loved. You see him down there on the hillside? Sheep are doing well. He's just written something. Oh, he swung that thing on the back of his back. He swung it around. And I don't believe David. He could do the. He could do that. And he could do that. <laughs> He's the best. He's the best. I mean, and he's singing. And he's singing. And he's weeping. And he's crying. This guy is unique. King Saul's depressed. We need somebody that's really good at me. Well, there's this young guy. He's the best. Bring him, and it works. And whether it was, or sing it again. Yeah, yeah. I like you. You make me feel better. You're really good. Number four, he had the heart of a warrior. A lion comes against a sheep, he kills the lion. A bear comes against a sheep, he kills the bear. Goliath comes against the people of God and is speaking against the God of Israel. As a young, young man, teenager, David's attitude is, I'm going to rip your head off. I don't care if you're nine foot nine or not. And he goes and he cuts the man's head off. You understand? David shed a lot of blood. He killed a lot of people. He killed thousands. Thousands? It'd be like, hey, one to one, our guy took out one of them. No, we got a guy that took out five of them. If you, like, through your history, took out 25 guys and you still live, thousands have stood in front of David and thousands died. You put David in a room full of warriors and they all go, now that's the warrior. He's the warrior. He's the baddest guy around. God, I want to build you a temple. No, your son can. You've shed too much blood. It was in my will and you were defending me. This guy's a warrior. And of course we know he's a king. He had the heart of a king. I don't have time to develop all of that. David had a heart that was wise He loved justice. 
He really had a desire for justice and peace and fairness and equity. Law. He had a heart like God's. I do have to share this. Answer this question for me, best you can. Who do you think the best shepherd in the Old Testament is? If you had to guess. David. Who's the best poet in the Old Testament? David. Who's the best musician in the Old Testament? The best warrior in the Old Testament? Who was Israel's best king? Same guy, all five. Same answer. Ask five questions. We're talking about the best of the best. Listen. He loved God. He loved music. He loved poetry and song. He's the great psalmist. There are others. If you do not like, if you get offended by expressive worship, you would not have liked David. Go read Psalm 63, verses 1 through 4, and he talks about how he's going to raise his hands to the Lord. He ends up marrying King Saul's daughter, Michael, and when the ark's being brought into Jerusalem, David is leaping and dancing in front of it. She gets very offended. That's not very kingly. The other young girls are going to look at you. His attitude, I'm paraphrasing, you stand down. I don't care what you're thinking. I'm going to worship and praise the Lord. And this guy danced and sang and played. If you don't like expressive worship, you would not have liked this man. He had a case of the I don't care what you think. He had a big case of it. We see these videos of these. See, today you cannot just hear songs on the radio. You can go watch the videos and you see all these people singing. I'm telling you, if this man was in their group, he would have such gravity. Everybody would be praising the Lord because, like, man, the king. If he did that for God the Father, what would he do if he knew all of what God did through Christ? That would blow his mind. You say, I wonder what he's doing right now. Right now his mind's being blown by Christ. Right now. This guy, he's special. But you have a last note. And my time is gone and my voice is almost gone, but I'm going to finish here. You with me? Does verse 22, 21, 22 mean David's perfect? No. He's not perfect. Saul in verse 21, David in verse 22. This doesn't mean David's perfect. He's far from it. What we have here in front of us, listen, is a God's eye view of two men in their heart. I've done this before. I'm going to hit it quickly. Do y'all remember King Saul's sins? Just think it in your mind. You're like, I don't remember what his sins were. Review quickly. Watch. Saul is king. The Philistines are coming. They vastly outnumber Israel. Samuel, the prophet, has told King Saul in seven days, we'll offer sacrifices to God. Before the battle, we want God's blessings. The Philistines are coming. Seventh day arrives. Samuel has not gotten there. The Jews are starting to leave out of fear. His army's fleeing and running. He's losing them. And so David, I'm sorry, Saul says... Bring me the animals and I'll sacrifice them. We need God's blessing on us. So Saul, who's of the tribe of Benjamin, not Levite, not a prophet, only the king, he offers sacrifices to God. Up walks Samuel, rebukes him. What have you just done? You weren't on time. You're running late. Had to do this. I'm losing the army. No, you've crossed the line. You are not qualified to offer the. God will take the kingdom from you and give it to somebody who has a heart like his. Second thing he did, later, God says, hey, the Amalekites, when the children of Israel were coming through 
in the wilderness. The Amalekites mistreated my people. Well, their day has come. It's been hundreds of years. Samuel, go tell Saul to lead the army and go destroy all the Amalekites. It's going to sound horrible. This is not politically correct. God tells Samuel to tell Saul, go kill every Amalekite, every man, every woman, every child, every infant, every animal they have. Leave nothing. I'm giving you the victory. Off they go. God gives the victory. They come back. Here comes Samuel. Here's Saul. Hey, God gave the victory. I'm paraphrasing. Yes, he did. What have you done? We did it. We did what you said. No, you haven't. Yes, we did. Then what's this noise of sheep and cattle that I'm hearing? Oh, the people and I, we noticed they had some choice sheep and flocks and, and goats and cows that fit our descriptions in the law. They're going to make great sacrifices for when we disobey God. You left these animals alive for sacrifices. Do you not know that God would rather you obey him than to offer him sacrifices? The kingdom's going to be taken from you. But the people did it. The people, it's their fault. That's all. Did you catch it? Review. He offered some sacrifices to God. And he didn't kill some animals. And he didn't kill the king of the Amalekites. Samuel had to do it. Now y'all know David's sins. He's out on the balcony. His troops are at battle. David's older. He looks down and in the spur of a moment sees, sees a woman bathing. She's beautiful. He calls for her to come up. He knows it's not his wife. He knows it's one of his soldier's wife. One of his leading most mighty men. He has sex with her. She ends up getting pregnant. She lets him know, obviously a few days later, I'm pregnant. David, in panic, gets this stupid idea. Go tell your hu- his, her husband. Send Uriah back from the front lines. Uriah comes back. David's plan is surely Uriah, while he's in town, will go have sexual relations with his beautiful wife. And then he'll think when the baby's born in eight months or so that it's his baby, I'll be off scot-free. The problem was Uriah in that moment was a better man than David because Uriah would not have sex with his wife while the nation of Israel was at war. He spends the night outside. And David's like, no, go. He's like, no, I can't do it, sir. can't do it. David ends up writing a note, rolls it up, puts it in his hand. Uriah has no idea. He has in his hand a death warrant for himself, takes it back, gives it to the great commander. And the commander opens it up and it says, put Uriah in the worst part of the battle. And when the battle is heated against him, have everyone else draw back so that he dies. That's called murder. Adultery with his wife. She gets pregnant. Tries to do an end around reverse trick. Uriah's better than that. David has adultery and murder. Saul doesn't kill some animals and offers some sacrifices. David, murder, adultery. Which one's the better man? Clearly, David. What? Write it down. David is the better man because Saul's sins were never met with sorrow. Saul's sins were never met with repentance. Saul's main concern was was his image. Samuel, dude, it doesn't look good in front of the elders of Israel for you to be rebuking me. Can't we deal with this later? Come on, just stay with me. Bless me in front of the people. This is a bad look, man. Whereas David's sins were met with godly, deep sorrow, weeping. 
David knows the presence of the Lord. He's used to that. And now, because of his sin, the Lord has withdrawn his fellowship. And David misses it. David cries and weeps. He confesses his sin. He forsakes his sin. But David ultimately has enough faith to receive the forgiveness of God. And that does not describe Saul. So it isn't about who has the less sin or the lesser sin. It's about who has the heart that ultimately trusts God to forgive them of their sins. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to heaven. And I promise you, I've done some things in my life that are worse than some people in this room. But there may be some people in this room that you're not going to heaven. And it has nothing to do because you've lived a better life than I have. The difference is, I've chosen to receive the forgiveness of the Lord because he promised he would give it. David did that. Saul, just always blaming other people for his sin, never has sorrow, true sorrow for it. Never repents of it. Who are you like? Who are you like? When you've written that, would you bow your heads just for a moment? Eyes closed. I'm going to pray. But before I do, can I ask you this? When you sin, I'm talking to Christians. When you sin, not if you sin. When you sin and God convicts you. Maybe right now, don't raise your hand. Is there anyone here right now, just in your own heart, you know some specific sin is between you and God. Have you met that sin and the conviction, the the pointing out from God of that sin? Have you met that with godly sorrow? Or do you qualify it? Blame someone else. It's their fault. They really made me do this. Do you confess your sins? Do you turn from and repent of your sin? When you sin, not if you sin, when you sin, when you confess, do you really believe that God is going to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness? This is the kind of man that David was. Saul was weak spiritually. David was authentic. I encourage you, receive the forgiveness of the Lord. He offers it through Christ. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David believed the promises of God. Would you believe the promise of God today? Just deal with the Lord over your sin. Maybe someone here this morning, you're tempted to quit. Can I encourage you? Don't quit. Don't ever quit. Get closer to the Lord. Get closer to His people. And lastly, can I encourage us all, don't be offended by the sovereignty of God and all of its ramifications. Thank Him for it and lean into it. Acknowledge it. Accept it. Rest in the sovereignty of God. God chose the nation of Israel. In 1979, God executed His plan because of eternity past. He chose me. Don't fight it. Don't be offended by it. Accept it. Father, as we leave this morning, would you give us clean, pure hearts with a clean conscience? And Lord, I ask you, would you give us, all of us, a burden for lost people 
like you gave to Paul. And Lord, please, would you make grace for you a church that is just filled with people who have a passion for your glory, a heart like yours, a heart like David's, where we just love you, we sing to you, we receive your shepherding, knowing you're our warrior and our king. May we bask in that, enjoy it, and praise you in an expressive manner. You are great, and you should be worshiped greatly, praised greatly. In Christ's name, amen. Have a great week.